my name is Hayley Robbins and welcome to the next episode in the Positive Partnerships podcast series, where we bring you real life stories from around Australia about life on the autism spectrum by those that know best. Tanya Wolford is a working mum from Ocean Shores in New South Wales. She has four children and within a period of 18 months, three of her children were diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Tanya will share life's challenges and express ways in which her family are working through this process and ways that you too can advocate for someone on the autism spectrum. She is so generous to share her life experience, practical advice and knowledge, and I encourage you to sit back, grab a cup of tea and listen to Tanya's words of wisdom. Hello, my name is Tanya Walford. I have four children aged between nine and nearly 17. Three, the three boys who are age nine, 11 and 15 are all diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Uh, My daughter would probably also have been diagnosed if we knew what we know now. So often we treat her as being on the spectrum even though she hasn't got an um, official diagnosis. All four children have anxiety as a predominant challenge in their lives. So we have to deal with anxiety every day. My um, journey with autism began probably with um, our first eldest son, Isaac, who's now 15. He presented very early with um, what we thought was a very full-on temper So compared to other family members, and we were all raising our children together, our child was the one who was throwing seven-hour tantrums at 12 or 13 months. And when I say seven hours, he would literally bang his head, scream, cry, um, throw himself on the floor, and he would possibly calm down for a few seconds to have a drink, um, but then he would get right back into it. So after... Eight years of being sent to parenting courses, uh, doctors who told us we just needed to discipline him, um, parents being helpful, saying that we needed to give him a smack. Um, We basically ended up with the right paediatrician who took one look at Isaac. He'd had many diagnoses of oppositional defiance disorder and Tourette's and all sorts of things, but finally he looked at Isaac and said straight away, um, he's got no eye contact He's definitely on the spectrum. And we hadn't really heard much about autism. Uh, It was probably a stereotypical um, understanding of it. So you see the savant sitting in the corner. Um, But literally that day I went home and started reading and it clicked so clearly for me that that was Isaac's disability, um, that it was such a relief for us to finally understand that um, we weren't wrong when we were saying that he was different to other kids. Our second and third son, so Isaac was nine, so already we'd had our four children. Um, and our second son wasn't typical, but he developed an obsession with fire and liquid that became quite um challenging and was picked up in preschool and kindergarten particularly around liquids and food so he started sitting in the corner at school and rubbing food into his hands and wanting to basically um, stare at the food and and do that sort of thing Um, and our third son pretty much he was diagnosed at two and um, our second son was diagnosed at four they were very close to each other with diagnosis probably within one or two months Um, so it all happened really in about 18 months that all 
uh, three children were diagnosed. So we went through quite a dark period in terms of grief with the family and also a lot of um, trying to understand how our life would be eternally different from other families and that it could possibly be lonely. Um, And I then sort of decided to take a path of getting as educated as I possibly could um, around autism, the challenges with autism, but also the possibilities because I do really see in my children lots of possibility. As the children have grown, um, it's become more apparent. So our first son, Isaac, his behaviour has become so challenging that in the last 18 months we've had to move him out of home. Um, We had to consider relinquishing care of him because his behaviour has been so challenging in in the home that it was affecting everybody to the point where we couldn't function as a family. So we were having police called, we were having facts involved, um, doctors. uh, Basically, he's uh, so violent that he was hurting the other children. And my husband and I had to make a decision on our own to... First of all, move him to a boarding school, which was our last resort. We didn't get any help to do that, but we basically put everything on the line, on the mortgage, to get him out of the house and hopefully give him some opportunity still to function in a mainstream environment. Um, And then secondly, in holidays, it became apparent he couldn't even stay with us in holidays. So we now pay for alternate accommodation each holidays where he and Dad stay somewhere in in the suburb but far enough away so that he can't come home unannounced Um, and he comes home for what we call, I guess, supervised visits. And that is working but it's also extremely challenging. So, for example, at Christmas we have nine weeks coming up where he will be home and uh, as a family we have to juggle. I call myself a single mother for that stage um, and my husband has to juggle obviously working and trying to be available for the other children who all have anxiety. Um, Isaac is extremely intelligent and he's also very um, capable of identifying the impact that he has on other people's lives. So that's been quite challenging because he can express to other members of the family things that are quite hurtful or quite difficult. So, for example... Dad's coming to live with me because he doesn't love any of you and that's been really hard for the, for us as a family trying to work through some of those things that feel very um, targeted and very deliberate but actually are things that he can't help. Um, our second son is in mainstream school, Renzo. He um, has lots of support but he's doing okay in mainstream school. He's had lots of support um, around occupational therapy, therapy, Um, some psychology help, particularly with anxiety, Um, and also the school has been really instrumental in working with us um, in a way that's incredibly open with communication. So we have a lot of the transdisciplinary team, so the OTs and the speech and that all go to the school to work with him. Um, And it's a day-by-day thing. So for him, he's developing more um, typical, I suppose what you'd say, typical features of autism as he gets older. 
And that tends to be the case that I've observed with my children. As they get older, it becomes harder for them to integrate in a way that is, I suppose, natural like other kids. So he's becoming more withdrawn. He's having more meltdowns at school. He's finding noise more challenging. Um, He's also becoming more defiant. Um, So moving into high school, that's probably a focus for us in the next two years. Our third son, Marcel, is nine and he's in an autism unit and he's probably the most typical autistic. So he's got developmental um, delays as well as autism. He's extremely black and white. So if if you say something, that's it and he will remind you about it for the rest of your life. Um, He hates being told what to do. And he is incredibly funny, so that's going to get him through in life. He, he loves telling jokes, and in fact, one of his interests is researching Irish jokes. Um, and he's good. He can rattle off hundreds without stopping. Um, he's very clever. So that's my three children with autism in a nutshell. I'll talk briefly about my daughter. She's um, 16 turning 17 and she's very much a carer in our family and part of our family in terms of the role that she plays over the years has been one of um, diverting some children while I'm dealing with another child, of protecting children. She's had to deal with some very difficult situations Um, Our eldest son has an issue with spontaneity, so he steals things, so she's had things taken from her. Um, It's been incredibly challenging, but it's also made her into a really empathetic and um, very sensitive young woman in a way that you don't see with her friends. She has a selflessness that um, is a beautiful quality, and I think that... um, Without her life experience, she wouldn't have had that. She wants to become a doctor. I don't know if she'll actually end up doing that, but at this stage she's still saying that and I think she'd be an amazing doctor. Um, She's also been really involved with young carers and I think that's been an incredible benefit and probably I would say if there was any... Anyone who had siblings who, you know, were going on this journey as well, if you can link into something like Young Carers where... Your your ch- children who are involved in the caring role or get to see other children and experience other people's lives and understand that they're not alone. It's a very beneficial and important process for them as well. So before we started on our path to diagnosis with the three children, starting obviously with the eldest, um, we were sent to so many doctors, therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists who all gave us a different diagnosis and that was incredibly challenging because I'm someone who needs to over-research everything. Um, so if I was given a diagnosis, I would actually send myself on a path of trying to find out everything I possibly could about that diagnosis and try and understand how that fit with my child. Um, one of the diagnoses that we had, which started to give me an idea that perhaps people weren't actually listening to what I was saying, was um, that we needed to remove all the televisions in the house because that would actually um, cause his behaviour. And that was by a leading child psycho- psychiatrist um, who still practices today. And when I challenged her, because 
I'm someone who likes to ask questions. I say, you know, how does that actually serve to improve a situation with a child who doesn't like taking no for an answer? Her response was, um, he will learn. And that was probably groundbreaking for me because I actually started to believe that Isaac couldn't learn. Um, And that was one of the things early on before autism became something well known was that you know, we used to say to people, consequences, traditional natural consequences don't work. So your parents would say, oh, just give them a smack and send them to their room or take something off them or, you know, all of those traditional things. And we would say, but that doesn't work. It doesn't work. It just makes it worse. And that's when we really started to say, well, you know, something else is going on. No one actually understands our children. And we started to really think about how we could get the answers that we needed. So I started to keep notes and a diary of behaviour and I suppose triggers and even before I realised that that's something that people do now with behavioural management plans, but looking at triggers, looking at responses and then looking at the outcomes. And eventually I shoved it in a new doctor's face that I hadn't been to before and I said, here, we're at the end of our wits. It was literally, um, we were going crazy because um, the preschool was saying that uh, he couldn't stay there. He was, um, his behaviour was uh, challenging everyone there. They didn't know what to do with him. Um, we couldn't leave him with anybody so we couldn't leave him with grandparents we couldn't leave him with friends we couldn't um, go anywhere so I got to the point where I couldn't go to the shopping centre I couldn't go and pick up a few things you know after work I couldn't do anything with my son because of his behaviour And the doctor then referred us to a paediatrician who just happened to have experience um, enough to understand that what we were actually saying was that, yes, he had autism. Um, So the the early days were very difficult because autism was still very new. And um, I also think there's still a lot of um, stigma attached to it. So I still, for example, get asked now if my children are vaccinated when I say I have three boys with autism, and that sends me completely through the roof, but I still get asked that question. I got asked that question last week, and I still, to this day, struggle to understand when one in a 100 kids are diagnosed, even more now, that there is still some attitudes that are living you know, around the area that make it hard harder for parents to deal with their children to get the support that they need. I guess the journey then went from one of um, shock as the three boys were diagnosed so so close together to being one where we really, and I say we, my husband and I, really started to go through quite a deep grief. Um, so I went into quite a deep depression for a couple of years after the children were diagnosed. I lost my job. Um, I, which was very challenging. I, I went to my work and I asked for some flexibility because the children had all been diagnosed and um, they actually made it really difficult for me. So I suffered quite a lot of discrimination as a result of my family. That sent me into a tailspin as well because I've always been someone who's worked and who's always been very successful in my job. Um, I found 
the children were needing more and more of my time, particularly around administration. So I say to people, even now I have form fatigue, everything needs a form, everything needs an appointment, everything needs a follow-up phone call, no one ever does what they say they're going to do, even though I'm expected to do all of those things. And it was really probably two, three, maybe four years of really hard times in our family where we saw, I guess, uh, a lot of people drop off the radar, a lot of friends who didn't understand what we were, what we were dealing with, who didn't like our children's behaviour, who didn't agree with perhaps how we were disciplining our children and who probably just weren't willing to get educated themselves about some of the challenges that we were going through. So I guess the turning point for us was when we went on a holiday or what we thought was going to be a holiday to New Zealand a few years ago and we had this great idea we're going to be like every other family in the world and get in one of those um, great travelling you know, camper vans and uh, start at the top of the North Island and go all the way to the South Island, just the six of us, it would be awesome. And it was probably the worst three weeks of our life. And my husband and I now call it the holiday from hell. Um, we had kids throwing tantrums pretty much from the time we, we left until the time we got back. In fact, when we got back, one of the children had a meltdown in customs and wouldn't leave. And we knew that all we had to do was walk five metres and we'd be in Australia sort of thing. And he sat there for two hours just refusing to leave. Um, and then another one decided to melt down before we could get to the cab. So it was just, it was so stressful. We realised afterwards it was actually really stressful on them because we were trying to do something that was unstructured, that wasn't planned, it was out of routine, it was out of home. And for our kids, being at home and having things at home is really important. And we were trying to do something that we would think a what we would call, you know, in rabbit ears, a normal family would do. And that's not our family. That actually doesn't work for our family. And so that was a real turning point for us. I think that's when we really started to go, okay, we can't do things that are going to upset our children or make our lives hard. We actually have to turn things around and start looking at what's going to make our life easy. So then um, I guess I started to really think about what would make my life easy and how to um, move forward in a way that's knowing that these kids are going to be with us for the rest of our lives, what, what we're going to do to, I guess, make our life easy. And I think one of the biggest things is um, I didn't want to just be a carer. I've always wanted to do other things that I love. I've always wanted to have my independence from my children. And I that's why I go to work. I make sure that I have a job. So I found a job, but I also made sure when I found a job that I said to them, I have three children with challenges. Um, there will be days when I can't work. Um, I was really upfront in all of my interviews and it took me a while to find the right job, but I did. And um, actually it's been amazing because it means that if I need to drop everything I can um, to look after one of my children, but my boss knows that he gets 100% out of me when I'm there. So we have a really good relationship and that's been really positive for me. I have someone or more than one person at work saying, well done, Tanya, you've done a great job because I don't get that with my children ever. Even though I do do a great job and I'm sure that 
one day maybe they'll appreciate some of it. Um, that's very important to me is to get that self-satisfaction from something other than just from my children. Um, I think the other big thing for me has been asking lots of questions and not accepting not accepting medical authority just because it's medical authority. So if someone is telling me something that I know isn't going to work for my children, I'm actually going to say so. I'm going to ask them why they're saying that. If um, a medication's being recommended, I'm going to ask why. I'm going to ask what other... Um, what are the side effects? I'm going to go and do research. I'll often say to a professional, I'm going to think about that and I'll come back to you. Um, I find that a lot of professionals, and we have seen a lot, um, the ones that are happy to rush you through in 10 minutes and write a script aren't the ones that I want to have a relationship with. So I have worked really hard to build up a team, and I do call it a team of professionals that work with all my children and some of them are different so I've I've understood over the years that all four of my children are different so for example I have all four children at a different school and that's because they all need to be where they are but in the team I have a pediatrician a psychologist and an occupational therapist um, and the teacher and often the special needs teacher from the school as well, all working together um, for my child. And I work really hard to keep that open openness. So by being professional with that team, um, it means that we get the best outcomes for our child. Um, I have appointment fatigue and form fatigue, and I say that at the start of every year. So what I do with that team is I say, one email for everybody. Can we all just copy each other in so we're all on the same page? We're all we've all got the same understanding of what's going on. We all know where we're going. So a good example of that is recently one of my children got suspended for the first time. He had never been suspended before, um, and it was for a behaviour that was not acceptable. But the whole team got involved. They all talked about it, and they also talked about how. Could that be done better next time? So what came out of that was he needed to be a little bit more supervised in playground, which is unstructured play, because as he's getting older, he's not understanding the nuances and the the triggers that perhaps other kids might understand for his age. Um, and so that's the aim to, I guess, minimise the impact of him being suspended again, because he's a kid who doesn't like to go to school. So a suspension is like a reward, and basically we want to avoid rewarding him with no school. Um, I have really worked hard to say no to things that create more work or more stress for my family. Um, I've gotten better at this and it does take a lot of practice, but over the years we have decided that it's easier for us as a family to stay home. It is easier for us as a family to be home after six or seven o'clock at night. It's easier for us as a family to spend Christmas at home. It's easier for us, uh, for example, to have holidays at home. So we, not everyone can afford it. We were fortunate enough, we put a pool in and that was probably the best thing we ever did for our boys. They're in it 
very proudly they've swum every day since it went in a year ago, even when there was ice on the pool. Um, but that's our holiday. Our holiday is at home and that's what we decided to do to minimise stress. We don't go out to parties. We don't we do not do barbecues at night on a weekend in a strange place. Um, we don't go to concerts. We, you know, all of those things that the children won't be able to manage, we just limit. So instead we have, you know, chosen few friends will come here um, occasionally now we've got a bit of funding. We do have a worker come and stay with the kids so that Luke and I can go out together and spend some time together. Um, and it's really important, I think, to just not fight it. I think that's probably one of the biggest things I've learned is if you fight it, it just makes it harder for you as a family. And instead, I think it's much easier to just accept that it's going to, if everyone's calm, then everyone's happy. Um, I also think you need to say yes to help as much as you can, even if it's someone and, and look, we've done it. We've, you know, someone who thinks that they know better. So parents particularly, um, who've said, I'll take them, I'll sort them out. So we've gone, okay, challenge accepted. And it's given them an insight then into, um, what our life might be like or you might get the same attitude which we get all the time oh they're just perfect for me I don't know why they're like that for you um, which is one of the probably the things that frustrates me the most they don't realize that the kids let it all out when they're at home in the comfort of their home with their family and they always hold it together for other people um, but if you can get help I mean we've got one family friend who's beautiful she's got four children of her own and she Every now and again, we'll just say, I'll just take the two boys for the weekend, the two younger ones, and you guys can go away or whatever. And she understands the kids. She, um, They love her. They, they enjoy it there. And um, we just are so grateful when we get that little break because it makes all the difference to our family. Um, we have also, I would have to say, linking with as much um, disability support as you can. I have learned over the years that organisations like Commonwealth Carer Respite Centre and Ability Links, there's a few of them that are free organisations that are designed basically to help carers or to help families by linking them into things that will provide support. And look, sometimes it might be just um, a weekend away for the kids, you know, towards Christmas one year, um, one of the organisations had lots of kids with autism and they all went away on a camp for the weekend um, with trained carers and husband and I got a break. Um, sometimes it's just, for example, one of my sons really wanted to pay, play soccer, but we needed to find a group that was going to accept that he can't actually play soccer with the other kids. He actually wanted to just go along and stand on the sidelines and have an occasional kick at the goal. Um, and they rang all the soccer places around the area and actually linked him in with a group um, that was amazing because it meant that it was all that hard work and that liaison work was done before we actually had to go and do it. Um, so link in with as many organisations as possible. Um, I think that that's really important, particularly um, with NDIS coming through now. There's all these little things that provide support that you don't know about unless you ask. Um, 
I've gone to as many autism workshops as I possibly can um, and I've educated myself as much as possible. Um, I think that being educated is really important in, and has been really important in my journey because now I'm providing that information to other families. I think that you, the more you know and because it's a changing, um, it's a changing world with autism, so as we're, as we're moving through, things are changing around our ideas around autism and what it, what it means for people with autism and also opportunity in terms of jobs and growth and independent living um, and the NDIS. I think the more um, educated I've been, the more able I've been to understand how I can move forward in a positive way. And I think that's really helped my family because it means that I am making sure that my family has access to as much um, opportunity as possible. And I think opportunity is the right word because it's about taking control of your family and also being the best advocate for your family that you can be. Um, I, I really think one of the things I've learnt is um, to use the um, positive partnerships matrix, which is presented at the workshops. I have developed that matrix for each of my children, even for my daughter, and I've used that for all sorts of things. So it's a snapshot into my children, their behaviour, their triggers, um, and all sorts of things like vacation care. I've given them a snapshot. I've given the new occupational therapist one when they're starting with one of the children. I've given it to a support worker who's turned up here in the holidays to help the kids for a couple of days um, do some activities while I went to work. Um, I find that any sort of snapshot or anything that you can do with the children that um, condenses the information into something that uh, is easy to understand and is also in a language that therapists, um, doctors, educators understand, that that's really powerful if you can talk their language um, as much as possible. Um, I have been big on getting counselling and support for myself and also my husband, making sure he gets counselling and support. It's really good to spend all this time on the kids, but it's also really important to um, focus on the grief and the loneliness and some of the loss that you do feel. And I have especially focused on that um, that loss side of things or trying to understand, I guess, the reality as particularly as we get older and our friends are all seeing their children graduate, going to high school, uh, to uni and all of that sort of thing. And knowing that for us, that's not going to be our reality with particularly probably two and possibly three of the children. Um, so trying to really turn that around and focus on how we're going to make our lives um, meaningful and their lives meaningful in a way that's going to be separate from us. So, for example, at the moment, we are really starting to talk about getting some funding through the NDIS to set up a separate part of the house for independent living so the children can start to really learn how to take care of themselves, how to operate independently of mum and dad, how to uh, work to get a job, how to do some of the things that they need to do without us because we know it's going to take probably five to ten years to get them to the stage where they might be able to have some independence. So we really want to um, have like a training ground, I guess, or an opportunity for them to practice before it's time to think about flying the coop. Um, and then I think probably... Um, we've had to readjust our expectations. And I often say to people, 
uh, particularly teachers, I don't want my child to be a rocket scientist. It's not important. What's important to me is having children that can communicate because communication is really important in this world, um, that they can tolerate other people. So particularly for a couple of my kids, that's really challenging is just even being in the same room as other children can be stressful. And that's really important to me, way more important than academics or maths or being able to write. So, for example, one teacher was really fixated on one of my children and his handwriting, and it took me a long time, but I did eventually get uh, get get them to be convinced or to understand that, I don't care if they can't handwrite. They've got a computer. We all use computers. I don't handwrite anything, so why should he? Um, and, you know, being an advocate for your children, that's really hard and really exhausting. Um, but I thoroughly believe that it takes a lot of energy, but if you can be in people's faces, <laughs> the outcome for your children is better and they will get used to you. <laughs> I think that near enough isn't good enough with our children and I say that often, that they don't have a voice, they can't express themselves in a way that um, that, that they necessarily will be understood. And um, a great example is my youngest decided um, probably four or five weeks ago to call everybody an effing midget over and over again. Everybody he saw, you're an effing midget, you're an effing midget, you're an effing midget. And everything was fine until the short lady in, at school got called that and she took offence to it and wanted him to be suspended. And it's a good example for me of trying to say to people, you actually can't take it personally. And I say this to my husband, to my kids, you know, to grandparents. I take, say it to everybody. You cannot take anything that they say personally because it's not what they mean and it's not personal. It's all about expressing themselves. That there's something else going on and I think that's really important. It's got to be a lot of forgiveness and a lot of understanding and, yeah, turning conventional knowledge on its head. I think that's, you know, that's part of it as well is just it's, it's not deliberate, anything that the kids are doing. That brings us to the end of this episode in the Positive Partnerships podcast series. In our next episode, we will be travelling to Port Lincoln in South Australia to meet an Aboriginal family whose young son is on the autism spectrum. It doesn't really bother me because it's like me and my partner, we're like, it's like we're made to like deal with this. Thanks for joining us and be sure to listen to the next episode in the Positive Partnerships podcast series.